When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's what everybody, we are back, and this is episode 181, where front end ends and back end begins. I'm Matt, that's Mike, and this week we're doing our first two-parter episode. This will be part one, and I'll get into what the two different parts will be in a moment here. So if this sounds interesting to you, as vague as it is, although I guess the title's kind of direct, if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on Patreon, leave a review rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, or share this with your friends, and just like we did last week... I believe it was last week. We are going to be doing a review of the week. This is a brand new review, actually. 2022 review. And it says, and it reads here, 10 out of 10. This show brought me up to speed in the development world. I started at episode one and listened straight through for an incredibly deep understanding of what coding and the work of a coder looks like today. They explain technical concepts in a lighthearted manner. Throw it on from the beginning. If you are new to coding, you will learn a lot. Five star review. And uh, this is from Ramdom, ra- not random, Ramdom Access Memories. So <laughs> that's actually not, the, I actually don't mind that, a bit of a pun there. So thank you for that review. And if you want your review featured on the show, there's no guarantee, but of course, go and leave us a review somewhere on iTunes or on the platform that you're listening to this on, and we may just read your review on air. Now, Brief explanation as to what these two parts are going to be. Bit of a loaded episode here, even though it's just the first part. So, the breakdown is this episode is in two parts, it, but it's two fully different episodes. They're sort of standalone-ish. So, part one is we will cover the concepts of front-end development, back-end development, and full-stack development. Which, of course, is a combination of front-end and back-end. And then we're going to also answer, answer excuse me, common questions that you would have or may have as a beginner. Questions that per- come from our personal uh, adventures through web development or come from other people where they're like, hey, I'm stuck on this. And we hear that type of feedback a lot. And then we'll incorporate it here. So well, not every question out there. I'm sure there's thousands. But the ones that we hear commonly are the ones that we had. And then part two will be going over an example website and talking about the different parts of the site, like maybe the slider or the header or whatever the, the 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 parts will be. We haven't written that episode yet. And we'll be discussing what parts the front-end developer would commonly work on and what parts the back-end developer would work on. And we will be mentioning, of course, some of the technologies that can be used on particular elements as well. Um, and also some of the crossover, which we'll also cover in this, that may happen. So maybe a front-end dev could do task A, but a back-end dev could also do task A. What's better? Why would it be different? Yada, yada. We'll be talking about that as well here. And just a foreword, a little introductory note here that this uh, front end, back end and full stack breakdown is based upon uh, common methods that we have used on sites we've made or sites that we've seen made. Uh, and there are a lot of ways to engineer sites and web apps. And so uh, some of these topics that we that we cover may not be the only solution and oftentimes actually won't be. Sometimes something is done on the back end rather than the front end and vice versa. But the solution exists on both sides of the fence for one reason or another. There are also uh, more advanced and Michael touched on this briefly, but there are also more advanced advanced serverless uh, hosting 
that blur the line between front end, back end, and sort of the the standard, if you will, cPanel hosting setups. Uh, because we're covering the basics here, we're not going to get super super into serverless. Uh, we're going to be covering mostly the the basics, and we'll be mentioning vanilla, you know, JS, HTML, CSS a lot, just to sort of bring it back to basics and give you an idea as to where what front end is, what back end is, and where the line is, and what where the blur between that line is as well. So let's step into this journey here. So near the beginning of the web development journey, you'll see that there is a lot of high level divide into front end development and back end development and full stack development. So you're right. You're, you're just starting. You're like, you know, what is web development or how do I become a web developer? You're right at that beginning stage and really soon into that research, you're going to see this sort of divide into different roles, if you will. And when looking up the meanings of these roles, it seems easy enough. So you'll probably get the gist of these. You'll get front end development. And front-end development is basically making the UI that the user experiences easy enough, but it's commonly referred to client-side, which is, if you're just starting off, very confusing. So it's easy enough to understand that, hey, you're making the UI, but what's this whole client-side business? And you're like, hmm, there's a little question in the back in the back of my mind. Back-end development, and that is the code that happens behind the scenes to make the website work. And it's often tied to or related to databases and APIs and so on. But just like front-end development, it can confusingly, especially at this stage in your research, be referred to as server-side, right? And then the next one, this is probably the easiest concept to understand, and it is a combination of both the front-end and the back-end development, combining the creation of the UI and the logic that the site needs to function. So you're a person that builds out the UI, makes it all nice looking, and then you're also a person that goes in and deals with the APIs and all the other different databases and stuff like that to make the thing work. Now, whereas this might be the easiest concept to understand, it's arguably the hardest to learn due to all the concepts and technologies and different things you have to learn. So you didn't actually say what it was. It's full stack development. Oh, I thought I said it. Sorry. Yeah, so yeah, you just so full stack right development. into the explanation. Oh, sorry. So yeah, full stack development is a combination of the, the, the front end and the back end development. So... After looking up the definition of these aforementioned concepts, you're probably left with a few questions. What does client-side mean, right? What does server-side mean? And with that meaning said, don't you upload your front-end code to a server? So what's the difference between client-side and server-side? Just add a bit of salt in there. And then also, what logic, quote-unquote logic, is considered front-end and what is considered back-end? You know, for example, it may seem obvious that back-end developers would do calculations mostly, running numbers and related tasks, or at least that's what it seems like on the surface. However, front-end developers also do calculations, right? A common one might be to calculate the amount of elements on a page and then do some pagination so that users aren't overwhelmed with information. And final question here, why are some computations done on the client side and others done on the server side? So we'll jump into each of these questions at length and we'll go through and kind of tackle what the different definitions are. So first question here, what does client side mean? So this refers to anything that happens on the client's side or the client's computer. And the client in this case is the person using the website, the user, the customer, whatever you want to call them. If we use a basic vanilla HTML, CSS, and JS website, for example, the HTML is basically the skeleton of the layout, right? The CSS styles the HTML so that it looks more than just a skeleton. So the skeleton will be, there'll be the, the different, uh, maybe some headings and mostly text and some dividing, but it won't be all styled with proper alignments all over the place and stuff like that. So the CSS helps with that part. And then the JS, the JavaScript will help with more interactive styles. So for example, if somebody clicks a link and that 
that clicking action toggles a button to change the color of the button. And then clicking it again toggles the color back and forth. So maybe if the button's red and they click it, it turns green. And if they click it when it's green, it turns red. So it just toggles back and forth, back and forth. The HTML, CSS, and JS, those files, those sit on a host, web host, server somewhere. But the actual work is done locally on the website's computer. So this is where things, especially for real beginners can get confusing. It's like, well, it's client side. Why am I uploading it? Like what's going on here, right? The user's browser, the website user's browser renders the site and then also deals with anything that comes up with JS. So in our case, the button toggling. So basically the skeleton and the, I'm not going to get into how all the rendering and stuff works, but like basically the skeleton uh, with its CSS styling loads in there. And then the JS will, uh, you know, kind of in this particular example, will kick in every single time somebody clicks that button to toggle it from red to green and vice versa, right? So these computations are done on a client's computer. They are not done on the server or the host or the web host in this case. These computations, the rendering is done by the browser. The running of the JavaScript when appropriate in this example is, is, is on the website user's browser. This is all the computations, all of the, all the zeros and ones are being, for the most part, are being done right here on the client's computer or the website user's computer. Now, one thing, and this is purely a personal note, one thing that helped me remember what client-side meant, this is when I was first learning, was the fact that the user can turn off JavaScript in most browser settings. In most modern browsers, you can go into your settings and just click turn off JavaScript. Actually, I don't even know of a browser in which you can't off offhand. So in this example, turning off the JavaScript, right, would break the button toggling code, that red to green, green to red. So in my head... When I was first learning, this helps me remember that the user is in control of what is being computed on their computer or on the client side. They're in control of that. They can determine, I don't want JavaScript. And then the site will still render and will still look fine with the HTML and CSS, but the JavaScript is turned off, not by us, meaning the developer, but by them, by the client, by the user. Right. Just to jump in here uh, real quick, I think you've done a really good job explaining it. But one thing that kind of helps me understand the whole client side rendering stuff uh, is that essentially what happens, like you said, the computations run the client, but the code is held on the server and then your client to the browser downloads whatever it needs to run that page, right? So it actually downloads the JavaScript file, the HTML file, the CSS file, whatever is needed on that page, as well as all the images. And you can actually go into the, uh, the inspect tools the developer tools, click on the network tab and see exactly what the client is going to download and then run on your like home computer, right? That's the big differentiation for me between client and server side. And the other thing is, is that how JavaScript works and how um, client side rendering works is that it compiles everything at runtime. So that's why we have a little bit of a problem with JavaScript where it's really difficult to find bugs that happen due to user action because they're not kind of checked like in a traditional coding language like Java or C Sharp uh, or Rust or whatever those coding languages. What they do is when you compile that code, it actually runs a check through and checks to see if the code is correct and then gives you an error telling you that it's not correct. But because this is running on the client side and because the code is compiled at runtime because it's on the client, 
you actually don't catch those things until it's usually too late. That's why testing libraries are so important with JavaScript. That's why uh, using linters and prettier and all those all those fun things are so important because of the fact that it is a client-side rendering application. It, it, there is some controversy there as well. Like a lot of people, if you look online, will actually come and like attack JavaScript because of its structure. People have always said that maybe it would have been better to have a compile time ready language that renders it into an already like fully executed code base or a binary that is tested fully to make sure that what whatever we're releasing into onto the web is error checked and doesn't have all these glitches. Um, so there is some argument there. On the other hand, it's a lot faster to build with JavaScript because you're not constantly having to compile every single change that you make to see what it looks like on the website. So there's a give and take, but I just wanted to clarify what, in my mind, how I picture client side as well, as well as a tool, like I said, developer tools that can make you kind of picture it a little bit better. And, and those are great notes to, to add. There's a lot to this sort of front end, back end, server side, client side stuff. Uh, that we need to cover. And, uh, I was going to look up and do a bunch of stuff on, uh, you know, who does it download? Does it do this? Does it do that? But that's a great, uh, what Mike just said is a great little, uh, covering of what, what that was. Cause the, the thing I was going to write was going to be another six pages and it was going to be too much. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot of intricacies in the, in the rendering and into this. And, and as Mike mentioned, there's also controversies as to where, uh, certain, uh, Things like whether it should be done at the front end, whether it should be done in JavaScript, whether it should be done on the back end, yada, yada. There's going to be controversies and stuff like that throughout this where you're going to say, hey, that shouldn't be done there. And, you know, there's maybe a reason for you to not want to do it there and a reason for me to want to do it there, that type of thing. So it's a good thing to acknowledge these little intricacies as well. So the next question here, what does server side mean? Now, this refers to anything that happens on the server rather than on the website user's computer or the client, right? The server in this case is often the web host server. However, depending on the website or website or web app, it may be a remote server of some kind. So maybe it's a remote resource like a data store or you're hitting an API somewhere, stuff like that. So it's no longer just the web host server. Server-side programming uh, will commonly handle things like database interactions, uh, API usage, uh, secure computations. So maybe you don't want a bit, uh, a certain bit of code or what that code is processing to be shown in plain text on a client's computer as uh, JavaScript is. It's You can literally just go in, like Mike said, to the dev tools and you can see that JavaScript file that's been downloaded and, and that JavaScript script that's been downloaded. And you can see, hey, you know, why are they, you know, adding one here and what are they incrementing here and what is this? and what is that? You can just see that. And so if you're processing something that is secure, uh, you don't want to do that. And a couple more points here. We uh, I got uh, Mike as well as a contractor that we work with all the time to take a look at these notes. And um, these are the couple of the points that he, that he, he mentioned here. So uh, the main idea is that server-side calculations uh, cannot be changed by the user. So it really is sort of the main uh, difference really here. So like I said, you know, you don't want people prying in there and seeing what data is being processed, but you also don't want the uh, the actual code and the calculations uh, to be manipulated by the user. You're going to be keeping it sort of, if you will, close to the vest, keep it on your server, on your web host server, let's say. And that way, the user can't go into the dev tools and change that. They can't go in and change your change your PHP file or change whatever backend uh, technology you're using. But having this sort of controlled environment with all these sort of benefits, as we kind of laying out here, 
it requires a server. So there's some overhead here. It requires a server that has proper configuration, proper language support, enough space, meaning disk space, stuff like that. And also because you're more than likely doing things that need to be secure on the server, having things, uh, having uh, regular security updates and having regular uh, server upgrades and server, um, anything security-based really is really crucial on the server. So things like that. Um, And then also all validations, another point from him here is all validations should happen on the server side too. So uh, for example, note that front end is a visual part of the website, as we've already touched on, and users can change the code uh, executed on their machine. Like I said, you go in and you can just see the JavaScript. You can also manipulate it in those dev tools. So, for example, let's say you have a really basic uh, email form of some sort or just a form with with a with one field that you expect an integer from. You could validate that data, meaning ensure that the user actually types in one, two, three, and not ASDF. You could validate that with JavaScript, but here's the thing. That validation is meant so that when the user types in, you know, one, two, three, they press submit, that one, two, three goes to a backend script at some point and and does something, goes into a database, a calculation is run, whatever it is. But if your validation or your validation is ultimately the, the, the wall between them submitting something that's incorrect. So what happens here is if you really need that validation to be correct, you really should be doing that server side. The reason being is that if I validate that it's an integer in in JavaScript and someone gets wise to that, understands tech a bit, understands JavaScript a bit, they go into my JS code and they take away they take away my uh, my validation code, or they manipulate it so that it will accept not just an integer, but it will accept ASDF. And it goes to that backend script that could result in errors, it could result in data corruption, if that's really not what you're expecting, it could result in issues, things like that. And so if you want to have really solid validations, doing that on the server side, almost like a security thing, doing that on the server side is probably where you're going to want to go. Right. Uh, and the other thing with the with server side is, just to kind of iterate that point and hit that point really hard. Again, client side, everything is readable to the point where, again, you, you open up dev tools, you go into the sources and you can see the code. You can even step through the code so you can find where, what, what causes an action. You can put a breakpoint there and then you can see all the information that's being put at that certain breakpoint when that code is run. So anything you do on the client side is fully accessible to anyone that has even a tiny bit of uh, web development knowledge. It's very, very extremely insecure. The, a password, for instance, if you were to do any sort of authentication client side, you would have to convert that password from a hash to a plain text password to, to check with the database. Anyone could intercept that communication immediately. So any sort of authentication has to be done on a, on a server. Because of that aspect, that's why it's really, really important to kind of get that into your heads when you're building something, especially when security is uh, is involved. As soon as you hear security, think server. That's an important that's an important component. The other thing is uh, not only API consumption can be done on the server. In fact, a lot of API consumption can be done on the client side as well. You can actually create APIs on the server. That's another big portion of what a server does because essentially any sort of route that you create on a Node.js, Laravel, PHP backend will become quote unquote an API as well. So that's another kind of important point for the server is if you need to create an API, if you need other components of your application or other 
apps to interact with you, with your data that you're collecting or your information that you have or the blog post that you're creating, if you need multiple different interfaces connecting to it, that is an indication that it needs to go server side, right? And we'll talk about more like, you know, break down what's server side, what's client side in the next segment. Matt, Matt kind of lays it out really well. But I just wanted to give, again, an indication of what what does server-side mean. And it really is important to understand uh, the concept of the functionality of a server, right? And lastly here, one thing I wanted to kind of hammer down, Matt mentioned earlier, serverless functions. This is a really, really, um, in my opinion, misnamed term and a confusing term for a lot of people. Because as soon as I hear serverless, I literally think, okay, so it's running on the client. Or it's running without a server because you're saying serverless. But that's not what it means. It kind of means serverless configuration. So you don't need to worry about configuring a Apache server to run some, some uh, server-side code. All these serverless functions for on like Vercel or Netlify or GitHub, the, these platforms that do it, or AWS has uh, Lambda functions, all of these server-side function uh, platforms, they allow you to just kind of write server server code without worrying about what it's running on. So you don't have to worry that it's running on Ubuntu with an Apache server. You don't have to worry or, or set up any of that. You can just write the code, put it as a serverless function, and then it kind of becomes an API for you automatically. And a lot of um, tools, and again, we'll talk about tools in a second, but a lot of uh, framework tools have serverless functions already built into them. So stuff like Nuxt, Next, SvelteKit, you can actually write serverless functions directly in your file structure, put it in an API folder, and it'll be interpreted as a server function. It's still running on the server, so you can do all this secure stuff that um, we're talking about, password validation and uh, any sort of you know background calculations, any, anything you want to hide from the user, from the client, you can do in a serverless function because it's still running on a server. A client can't go in and find out the code that's running there. So that's the power of these serverless functions. They just make it a little bit faster, but it's still running on the server. I really question sometimes why, why when, because I would say like serverless is more advanced, obviously, like that's why I'm trying to cover in this episode, a lot of sort of the quote unquote standard sort of C panel, what you would buy, you know, for cheap for your first web host. It, it, it's interesting to me where sometimes we come up with names like serverless and stuff like that. Cause it is confusing. Cause if we really think about it, when we were back in school, there's like old concepts, right? Where something's a hundred years old and it's like, well, this is weird, but you know, it says that it's, you know, uh, you know, not a mouse, but in reality, it's actually a mouse type of thing. Like there's just weird things like that. But for whatever reason, it's like, we, we this is a new one. <laughs> this is like a new one that we've seen. It's not a hundred years old. It's just, I don't know. It just doesn't seem, I guess it's like also like a, a bit of a mix of, PR too, right? Like serverless is easy to say. You don't want to have like a whole sentence as your explanation too. So it's like the, the push and pull, not faulting whoever did it. Uh, but it is just, it is interesting to me. Um, next, next question here. Um, what quote unquote logic is considered front end and which is considered back end? Now, this type of question may seem obvious once you understand what client side versus server side is. However, it can be very difficult to determine context as to what should be front end and what should be back end. So I have some alternative wording here. This question is going to get a little messy here, but alternative wording to this question would be, should I limit 
calculations and other more quote unquote programmy, very technical uh, things to the back end. <laughs> I just ripped on serverless and then I just called yeah, things programmy. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it's very yeah. programming. Uh, so that's why I'm saying I'm not faulting whoever made serverless because I mean, it's not, not easy to name things. Um, this question you know, at this point has two wordings and it may seem a bit abstract or messy and, and and maybe it is. But what I'm trying to address with this question is the sort of mental block or struggle that I personally had when first learning where my job as a front end developer ended and where the job of a back end developer began, sort of the, the the trigger for the episode name as well. Sometimes I'd code up something using, let's say, vanilla JS and that worked just like it should. But parts of it had me wondering whether some of it should be back-end code and not front-end. And I was just learning in this very early environment. But if there were, if there was a team of people, would I be stepping on the toes of a back-end developer? Am I overreaching? Did I do too many calculations in my front-end code? Is my front-end code supposed to be more directly just visual things? And I think that this question, as I've already alluded to, comes from the general idea that front-end is visual and back-end is logical. When you're writing up your front-end JavaScript as a beginner, you may begin to question whether you should be performing basic calculations and other logic decisions, or should you leave that for back-end code? It's a question of, you can do this, but should you do this? Or are you supposed to be doing this? It's really, it's it, it's definitely a beginner question, but it is still a question that at least I had when I was going through this. And a bit of an explanation here is that Front end is certainly more visual than back end, of course, right? But it's not always purely used for visual. There are some user interfaces that get very complex, especially when dealing with data heavy web apps. And these complex layouts often require a fair bit of logic to be done in the front end in order to lay out charts correctly or maybe organize information such that there's not so much information coming at the user so they can filter some of it away and they won't get overwhelmed. And this sort of logic can be done in the front end. And while this logic is almost always, if not always, tied to showing or potentially or potentially showing some sort of change visually in the UI, the logic aspect can get rather intense. And sometimes because of this intensity, it can feel separated from the visual component. It can feel separated from you changing the color of a button or moving things around. And this is because... In my opinion, some of it, some of this code may not be used right away or ever. So for example, maybe in your JS, you're preloading something because you're anticipating the user to take a certain action and you want it to load quickly for them. So you start to preload something and then that user never takes that anticipated action and that thing is never shown. So then you might start thinking to yourself, well, am I like caught up in my own logic? There's a, there's a kind of a, there's a potential dead end here. Is this something that the backend developers should be handling? And beginners, as I'm already mentioning, may think that front-end code should be limited to very basic visual things, things that are very obviously visual, things like toggling a button's color, showing or hiding a form. But in reality, front-end can get very complex. Front-end is more than just the, the most basic form and forms, I suppose, of UI manipulation, such as the ones I mentioned, changing colors, moving elements around, maybe showing and hiding something. Front-end logic helps make the decisions as to how the most basic UI manipulations happen. 
it's not only making those manipulations happen. It's the decision. It's often the decision making or part of the decision making as to why or how this thing changed color. Why is this thing moving around? Why are we hiding this certain thing? And a, a prime example would be if the user has a certain filter, a f- certain filter set selected, which elements would be shown based upon that filter that they've selected? Now, the answer here, as it's already long winded and has two wordings, is a bit muddy and really depends on that context that I mentioned before. And it's also a bit muddy, so we'll allude to something here, because the question, or this question exposes the closeness in working relationship that a backend and frontend developer can have when working on certain parts of a project. So let's take the filter example. The user has a filter set up, there's a big old chart of information, and there's some sort of elaborate filter. There's a few different filter categories that they've put on because they only want to see a certain type of data. You could... In that filter example, have some backend code that detects the filters that were selected and then have the database exclusively provide the results that should show up rather than hiding the ones that shouldn't be there visually with CSS or JS. This ultimately gives the user, the website user, the same results. So either solution may be acceptable, but there are times in which backend tech is favored over frontend tech. And that sort of leads into the next question. But there is a point that was brought up again by the contractor that we work with. So I do want to mention that here. And it, in the filtering example, he's saying it, it is a good example. However, he wants to note that sometimes it's still better to get everything at once and then filter it on the front end. It really does depend on the task. How many times will the user swap that filter around is one consideration to make. How big is the payload, meaning the network payload? Is, is it pulling in? 10 gigabytes of information in this big chart, that type of thing. And I realize that that's, I realize that that's uh, like leaving some stuff to be desired. And I will be, we'll be talking about payloads and stuff like that at, at the, uh, in the next question. But it is something to consider that there is a lot of considerations that have to be put into place. Can this be done on the front end? Can this be done on the back end? Where's the line? And we're blurring it now. You know, there is considerations. There are, there are times in which it's not just back end does this, front end does this. You put it together in your GitHub. You, you, you click test and then the QA team tests it. No, the, the UI, the UI or the front end team and the back end or the, the server team or whatever you want to call them in your company, they need to work together. It's entirely possible, and I'll get into this more in depth later, but it's entirely possible that if we take, uh, the example that, the um, that our friend gave us, it's entirely possible that the backend team, the server team, they will go in and they'll make it so that whenever the user clicks on a different filter, it only exclusively provides those results from the database. Maybe that works in version one, but maybe the database grows too much and the actual uh, looking up of those results uh, is, is cumbersome. Maybe there's a problem where the user is very rapid fire changing those filters and there's actually not a lot of data. And so you're just hitting the server over and over again and hitting that database over and over and over again using the backend code for no reason. And at that point, you may as well download the one megabyte package of information and then show and hide it with front end tech. And so that might be a version change. It's, it's entirely possible that something goes from a back end developer system and then that gets passed on to the front end team based upon conversations and, and performance and stuff. And you say, hey, you know what? The front end has to go and handle this. You know, the server's taken a thousand more hits than it should. Let's, let's hand it over to the, the client's computer and let's offload this computation onto the client's computer. 
Yeah, there's like a million different, uh, <laughs> a million different combinations of this too, and you, you, I think you nail it a lot in in the next segment here. But I will say, what logic is considered front end and which is considered back end is determined purely by preference for the most part. Other than a few very key things, like I mentioned before, security wise, uh, those things essentially will always be back end. But there's this shift in the industry that kind of goes up and down. So. Very much early on in the industry, everything was server-side rendered. And server-side rendering is essentially building a web page on the server side and sending in HTML and CSS to the client. And then every, all the calculations are done kind of server-side. The HTML and CSS is on the client. You can still send over some JS, but like a lot of the times early on in web development, it was considered faux pas to make the client do any work because the client you don't know what the client is capable of. That's the biggest issue. Yes, everyone can run JavaScript, but there's different versions of JavaScript. There's different browsers. There's different everything. So you kind of, you, it would, before it was really common to extrapolate that always to backend to know exactly what environment it's going to run in. And it makes sense, especially coming from a traditional programming background. So people that were coming into to web development initially were coming in from Java, from C, from C sharp because JavaScript was new. So in their paradigm world, they wanted to control all the factors as much as they possibly could. So they were doing everything clients or server side. It shifted a little bit as JavaScript progressed, as browsers kind of united in, in certain things. And as JavaScript became more powerful, it shifted towards the front end, maybe in the last, you know, five to 10 years where all of a sudden single page applications became a big thing. PWAs, when we talk about PWAs, Almost all the code there is running on the client because it has to, because it has to have a way to run offline. When it's offline, that means there's no server connection, right? So there's this, there's this shift that happened. But having said that, all of a sudden, we see Next come out, Next.js. We see Nuxt. We see SvelteKit come out. These uh, frameworks, these applications promote server-side rendering. They make it super easy for you. And now we're seeing the shift back to being like, well, what are we doing here? Why are we making the client do all this stuff, right, that the server could do? And we're seeing all these people shift back to like, okay, we'll, we'll have one environment that runs everything and we'll do only minimal stuff on the client. So there is still a combination, but it's now shifting back to the server. So I find it really interesting that this kind of the paradigm shifts that keep happening. And I bet you any, any money that five to 10 years from now, all of a sudden, like we're going to go back from server side to client side for whatever reason, right? Uh, maybe maybe because computing power will be so arbitrary. Like who cares? Everyone has a, a massive computer in their pocket. Like fashion um, trend here. Like what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, like who cares? Like exactly. Like it doesn't matter because power, like phones are getting more powerful, so powerful that you can do so much in just pure JavaScript and it's single threaded, which means that it's running on one core and it still performs perfectly. And you don't have to worry about it. So maybe eventually, as it becomes more powerful, as we see better technology, better processing, everything will shift to client side because people won't want to even pay for servers. Because remember, everything that you do on a server, you have to pay for that processing time. Now, there's there's packages that you know include a bunch of it for free or in a thing. But overall, if you're making an app to scale, you got to worry about how much it is running on the server, how many people are accessing that server. So again, it's this give and take, and there's a lot to say about it. Um, I think again, I'll let I'll let Matt take over here because the next segment gets more deeply into this topic about it. But it is going to come down to um, 
I, w- I don't want to say preference because a lot of it is very like there is a reason for every action, but there is this war of people like doing client side versus server side because they can mostly do the same thing. That's that's always the struggle is because there's going to be opinions that are or differing opinions in anything that's complex, well, anything really, but anything that's complex, especially like programming, like tech. And you're going to have differing opinions based upon usually good arguments on both sides. Of course, there's some cutoff things. Of course, you want to be doing secure things in a certain way. You want to be doing uh, certain tasks a certain way. Maybe some tasks can only be accomplished in back end. Maybe some tasks can only be accomplished in front end. There's just such a uh, so such a blur of the line uh, between front end and back end that it really gets confusing. And I'd actually like to point out, this isn't in the notes, but I'd like to point out as well that um, we mentioned full stack. You know, full stack, you you have to know, if you want to be full stack, you have to know both. You have to know front end and back end. Usually, you know, one stack or, you know, some people will know a couple, whatever. But th- at the end of the day, you have to, you are like the blurred line almost in this case. You know the front end stuff, you know the back end stuff, and you know how to put it together. And it can get really confusing, even with your own projects. If you're doing a project for yourself and you're not, you know, getting peer reviewed, this and that, you could even struggle and probably do struggle. Do I do this in the back end? How powerful is that server? You know, is that server really going to get hurt? Like this and that. Um, like when people are learning to code, uh, usually, or at least when, when we were doing it, there was very minimal concern about how powerful the server is. And now just as recently as a few months ago, we've had a server get completely overrun by traffic and we've had to literally change them over to a a completely different infrastructure. And to be honest, I don't even know how long that's going to last. So it it is very important and, and it does beg the question, you know, or does really bring attention to backend tasks like maintenance and, How many times is the server getting hit? Can we offload this to the client's computer? Can we make it so that we offload this to the client's computer, but they have to have a certain type of computer? You know, maybe there's a little bit of uh, heavier load that we're giving to the client. You know, are the people using this particular web app? Are they on capable computers that are doing this, et cetera, et cetera? And that'll lead right into this question here, which is why are some computations done on the front end and others done on the back end? So I've broken this down into a few categories here. And the first one is so these are the tasks that are almost always, again, almost always done in the back end. Okay. Not always, but almost always. First one here, dealing with APIs. The reason why we do this is because it mitigates cores issues, which is an acronym C-O-R-S, mitigates cores issues. It also limits exposure of things like API keys and passwords. So usually if you're trying to hit an API from uh, just straight JavaScript, you'll hit a cores issue. But if you, for whatever reason, don't, you will have to have your API key and password in there or more than likely. And you don't want that to be you know, given out publicly. So it'll limit exposure of things like that. The next use case here is uh, providing selective information. So for example, if you log in, you only want to see your account. You don't want to see everyone's account. Now, if you do that in the front end, I guess the back end tech would authenticate you and then all of everyone's account would load on your web page. And then based upon what you typed in, the front end tech would hide everyone else's information. But then you could look up everyone's information in the dev tools. So when you specifically want to provide selective information and you do not want them to see other things, then, and they shouldn't see other things, then you need to do that. Whereas with the filter example, it could be done on the front end because they can just turn off the filter and see that other stuff anyway. 
So again, providing selective information. Next one here, programmatically working with sensitive data. So for example, maybe uh, database connection information, a username and a password, or where that database is located, that could be sensitive. And this is especially true if that database, hopefully it does, require a password, because you're going to have your password in there. You're going to have your password in your script. And, and we'll see that, or you'll see that if you use WordPress. If you've used WordPress before, you've gone into your wp-config and you've typed in your username and your password for your uh, database. And you typed in where your database is and this and that. And again, that's in there. That is in, I believe it's in the wp-config. It's been a while since I've set up one from scratch, but I believe it's in the wp-config. But a lot of different programs that are like WordPress, you know, all-inclusive programs, they have a config file where you type that sort of information in and you do not want that going to every client's computer where they could just lo- look at it and be like, oh, there's the database, like, there's the database connection information. I wonder if I could inject stuff that it shouldn't be in there type of thing. You don't want that. Uh, also, working across devices. So, for example, if you need, for whatever reason, the, the the last time a user logged on, you need that date and time. Saving it locally in a browser storage isn't really going to do much good if the user uses a second computer to log in. They're not going to have anything on that second computer, and so that that's useless. So it has to be saved to a database, usually in your account. And then two points here, uh, again, made by our uh, contractor friend. Uh, mail. If you want to send email, you just need a server, straight up. So you need to you need to have an email server to send out email. You need to have a way to, or you need a backend, uh, you need a backend code effectively to send uh, send an email. So that's it. And then the second one is uh, delayed or background tasks. So some tasks require a lot of time to execute, but shouldn't affect the user experience in any way. So for example, if you want to convert an, an uploaded video into an MP4 format with a fixed size and bitrate, you can do so directly upon receiving the video, right? As it's uploading, but, or as it's uploaded, but the user will have to wait until it's done before going anywhere else. In that case, you may want to consider creating a background task that will convert the video um, at whenever, you know, in due time, and then it'll let the user know. So we'll see this, we'll see this a lot of the time with things like PDF converters or online file converters where you'll upload the file. So you have to sit there for the upload. You can't leave during that part. And then once it's uploaded, it'll say, hey, give me your email and I'll email you when it's done. That's everything. It's a background task. It'll be done in in, in due turn and whenever the server has time or when, however it's programmed to do so. Second category here. Second overall category here. These are some tasks that are optionally but commonly done in the backend. Computationally intense tasks, we've already kind of mentioned this, like rendering video or exporting photos. Sometimes you don't want to leave it up to the power of the client's computer. Instead, you can guarantee a similar experience for all users. So you do the task on the server where you can control the environment. So like Mike was saying with Various computing uh, powers that have, that we've had. Obviously, computing power has increased, and especially in, even in our pocket, we have quite a bit of computing power right in our pocket with our phones now. And so, you can offload some relatively intense tasks to the to to users or to to the client devices. However, if you want to have the user be able to have any hardware, and you or you want every user to have virtually the same experience, you can do that computationally intense task on the server because the server is something that you control. It is an environment that you control. You own it. And so you can give it more cores. You can give it more RAM. You can give it more disk space. You can give it more. And that's really crucial because if I'm on, let's say, a modern piece of hardware like a Chromebook, some Chromebook, not all, but some Chromebooks are rather weak. They're not that powerful, right? Because they're a Chromebook. And it may not, and because of the OS, it might not even have the software available. 
But your cloud might have that software. It might do that conversion, let's say. Or it instead, so I'll give you an example. So let's say you want to, on the client side, for whatever reason, convert a video. Well, that might take, depending on the size of the video, a couple of hours. Do you really want to have that, like that figure, that figure be skewed? Like, let's think about this. If, if you upload it to a server, and let's just assume the server's working perfectly, and it does it in two hours, it does it for the person on Chrome OS, it does it for the person on their phone, it does it for the person anywhere, and then they get an email saying, hey, this, this conversion's done. What if you left that conversion to the client's computer? Well, the guy on the Chromebook that, that that's old, let's say, like an older Chromebook, he's going to be there for not two hours, he's going to be there for nine hours. I'm going to, I have an older computer on right now. I might be only be there for an hour and a half because it was really powerful for the time. But if someone else has, um, has an Ultrabook, they might not, they might not even be able to do it. They might kill the battery. It might take too long, kill the battery. And so, you know, these intense tasks are where the niche is. You know, we can, we can rely on, you know, videos to play and other things like that to work now based upon the computing power that we generally all have. But those really intense tasks, Sometimes you don't want to leave that up to the user because it's just not going to work out well for you. I and also, another, th- another thing with the intense task is the tasks that are like are repeated multiple times. So the, the video is a perfect example. Uh, a user uploads a video and it needs to transcode into different formats so that different players can play it or different resolutions like 720p, 1080p. That kind of stuff is done once. And then read by a million different clients. Like think YouTube, right? You upload to YouTube. They handle all the transcoding. And then you just read the file from, from your computer. You don't transcode it onto your you know phone or your laptop. That would be a disaster. If you had to transcode every single video, the, the, the person with the Chromebook, like you were saying, is going to be sitting there waiting for it to transcode. <laughs> You're not going to be able to watch a video. Yeah. That, that's it. So anytime you have those situations where it's like – one conversion will help, you know, a million different people. And it doesn't have to be a million. It can be 10. It starts to make sense to put that onto the server to provide better user experience and to provide a more simple flow for you as well and, and much less support. Can, again, can you imagine YouTube, the grand scale of the thing? And all of a sudden, anyone with a slow device is going to be funneling in support because it's taking them hours to watch like a 10-minute video. And that might be an over-exaggeration, but that could happen depending on the device you have. So again, it's those kinds of considerations that also come into play. And based on that too, is the next point actually is just network stuff too, network payloads. So for example, you know, you may want to see a list of all the members of a club, let's say all the members of a club. The information is public and can be shown to the user. So there's not a security problem, but there are thousands of club members. So if all this information from these club members were pulled at once, the network payload in this example could be several gigabytes. This can take a really long time to load. Or another consideration, it could eat up the user's entire monthly mobile data usage. It's just gone. Boom, it's gone. So instead, you know, let's say we're, we use, use the filter example again. Instead, using filters or pagination powered by the back end, the back end can control how much data goes out. And it will only give a few megabytes of member information per page. And so the user is not just like, oh, there goes 10 gigabytes of my data. Like, there it goes. And arguably, the simplest front-end solution would be to have all the information pulled at once and then have the filters and pages determined by hiding and showing the rows of information with something like JavaScript, right? You pull all 100,000 members of this club and then you just hide the, the thing. But again, the network payload would be maxed out in order to get all the data. And in general... 
the page, and I'm sure there's ways around this, but the page may hang for God knows how long. Like you would have to have a progress bar if it's 10 gigabytes, because what if the person's on, again, a mobile network? What if the person, I have a friend that is on uh, DSL still. What if the network payload is, is like, it's because they're, they're in, they have rural internet, they have DSL. They're going to be there like 10 gigabytes is, is like 10 or 15 hours for them. Like not, like not exaggerating 10 or 15. What are they going to sit there with like a page that's hanging or a progress bar that's there 10 or 15 hours. And then hopefully because homes, some homes still have data limits here in Canada. Why? Like then you're going to eat up. The, <laughs> like what if you accidentally refreshed? He's going to pull that information again and s- stuff like that. Right. So um, that is. You know, that is a, a huge consideration is network payload. Not only the computational payload in terms of the CPU, the RAM, and that type of like the raw power, if you will, the computing power, but also the amount of data that's being sent, those payloads. And again, same as performance. Same, it's the same sort of note on performance as well. You control the network environment that your server has. And so you can give your users a more consistent experience. So to bring up my friend who lives in the country again, one of my ideas for him was he works in media. And so if you if you use DSL, I won't get super into it. If you use DSL, DSL is technically limited in terms of its upload capability. It basically tanks the network when you try to do it. It's slow when it even when it does do it ideally. And it's very hard. It's just the way that how I understand it is it's, it's how uh, people basically effectively jam a signal down a phone line. And so it's like trying to jam this signal down this phone line and it's, you know, it takes, it's just technically limited. DSL is technically limited in terms of its upload capability, especially in, in, in the home. That's what I was taught anyway. So what I told him was I said, you know, your upload, you know, your downloads like, okay, ish, it's 10. So it's enough just to run everything. And your upload 0.6, I believe it is something like that. And I said, you know, your upload is probably good enough to transmit keystrokes of a keyboard and clicks of a mouse. And then you're probably okay with downloading an image because he's going to watch YouTube and stuff. And what I recommended to him was for certain tasks, he could move certain tasks potentially to a cloud computer, to maybe a Windows 10 instance in Azure. And then he could use that and have the large files that he would potentially need to upload. He could work on them via remote desktop. That remote desktop would, pro, you know, do all of its quote unquote local to it, uh, all its computations. So it's, you know, it's in the cloud. It's doing all its computations. And then when he goes to upload, he's not uploading. The cloud computer is uploading and maybe it's a hundred up, hundred down or faster. And he, and he said like, you know, that's not too, that doesn't sound too crazy. Like it's possible because you're, you're, you are transmitting again, your mouse clicks and your, and your keystrokes. And you're tra- and you're effectively downloading a stream of video via your RDP. Well, if you're just doing productivity-based things like word processing or stuff like that, you know you're not maxing out your upload, you're not maxing out your download, and then if you need to do, you need to hit that upload hard, you're probably able to do it. But something like a game probably won't work that great over RDP. At least it didn't when I tried years ago. And maybe the bit rate's not enough for him with his download. But again, it's all about that balance. It's all about that balance between, I realize this isn't front end, back end, but same concept. It's that balance between what goes in the front end, what goes in the back end. How is the server working? Is the server being overworked? Is the front end being overworked? Is the client's computer being overworked? Those type of things. They're, they're very crucial questions that don't come into play when you're learning too much, I find. Don't come into play on most web apps. But when you start doing advanced things, it's over. 
And we've had users try to upload videos and they're like, hey, like, why is it? Why why am I getting, you know, why is everything hanging and everyone's getting kicked out? It's like, well, you're on shared hosting. You're uploading a video and telling it to transcode. Like that's going to take, if it, assuming it doesn't crash or stop the process, it's, it's going to tank everything because you don't have, there's just not enough power. There's not enough computing power there. Now, these are some tasks, the, the, the last sort of uh, heading here. These are some tasks that are usually, and again, usually not done in the back end. So, for example, this is probably pretty obvious, but tasks that you want computed off of your server and onto the, onto the client's computer. You're basically offloading it from the server. So, for example, it's very common to have the link that is that the user, the, the user's current active link, I guess you could call it. So, they're on the home page and that link looks different. They're on the homepage and that all the links are, are on the nav bar are white and you have the one that has like a different background. Like maybe it has like a blue background. And so there are, all the other text is white and this one is white with a blue background. That's indicating that they're on the homepage. It's their active page, right? Really easy, really basic. And I probably explained that too much. Basically, you would want to perform that logic that makes that blue background you want to do that locally on the client's computer as it is data that is individual to that user. It is data that is individual to that user's specific session. It does not need to be tracked on their account or on their server. And it's what I would call consumable data. It's data that they might need in the first place. Hey, where am I? Oh, I'm on the, on the homepage. They can see it as a glance. But when they leave that site and come back, they might not be on the homepage. And so you don't need to save that yesterday they were on the homepage and today they're on the homepage. You don't need to save that. And so that's some computing. I'll be, I'll be at very little, but that's very, that's some computing that you would specifically not want on the server and you would want it on to the client's computer. Just give that over to them. Yeah. And there's another, there's other aspects of this too. Like, again, I, I mentioned PWAs and I mentioned, uh, web applications. When you have kind of a canvas web application where you're editing images, for instance, right? An application where, uh, maybe you can put some filters on your images, making you can rotate an image. Maybe you can uh, manipulate an image and have it like out, like you know, convert it to something else. Stuff like that, stuff that needs real time communication, and stuff that needs you know direct rendering and direct power. You want to push that off more to the client as well. That's usually what's being pushed onto a client. A lot of application level logic. And applications like PhotoP, which is a Photoshop alternative that runs in the web. Applications like uh, Figma, which is like, you know, also kind of a Photoshop alternative, but in, in, a, in an easier sense or a prototype alternative. Uh, those kinds of applications are built using mostly client-side logic for the manipulation of images and manipulation of content that you're creating. Because... If you put that on the server, there's two things to worry about. And Matt's kind of mentioned them both. One of them is the network connection. So every move that you make of that image will have to send that move to the server, manipulate that image, and then send that image back. Imagine that kind of network traffic that would have to happen for that kind of functionality to work. And then secondly, the the actual rendering of that image, the actual manipulation of the image would also take up processing power and on that server. So you have this issue where your server could be overloaded with 10 people using it. Whereas if you put that all on the client side, I mean, if the client doesn't have a strong enough computer to use a photo imaging application, they don't have a strong enough computer. And that's it. That's the end of the, that's the, end of the story. They have to wait longer. They can't use it. And it's, it's on the client. But you're not, you're taking away that expense and it can get very expensive. 
to do all that stuff. And you're all of a sudden creating an application that is easily scalable. So you're, you're, yes, you're alienating a very, very small portion of the audience, but you're allowing your application to be successful and not bankrupt you. So it's those, those kinds of considerations are also really, really important to think about. A lot of real time stuff has to be done on the client. It's, you know, it, it is an interesting, it is an interesting balance, right? Because if you, uh, the, the, the very, the, the sort of, I guess, encompassing image I had in my head when you were talking is I can just imagine myself being at an IT service desk or being in a support role and having someone call who, who's like, you know, this isn't working, this isn't working. And, you know, you, you test it, you test it, you test it, whether it's running in the back end, whether it's running in the front end, you test, you test. And then you say, what are you using? And it's like, well, I'm using an IBM. It's like, oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using an IBM ThinkPad that's like version one or version two or something, like a really early version of the ThinkPad, let alone IBM ThinkPad is older at this point now in general, even the latest ones. It's like, oh, here we go. So you're having more of like a local computing issue, right? It's one of those things where I could just imagine having this, <laughs> I could just imagine this support call in my head perfectly. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I can't. It's it's really annoying debugging client side issues. Um, I, I think I mentioned this one before, where I had a call. We we, we released a, a web application, uh, and somehow someone found a phone number. I don't even know how that happened, but that's a different that's a different problem. But someone called me, and they're like, "Well, the, your web application is not working." And I'm like, "Well, I mean, everything is up on our end. I checked it. Everything's working on my end." And I'm like, "Well, what's wrong?" And she's like, "Well, it shows that the you know page can't be found or something like that." And I'm like. Uh, or there's no connections. It's, I think I think it's specifically said there's no connection. I'm like, well, do you have internet? Can you go to Google.com? And she's like, no, no, I can't go to Google.com. I don't have internet. So we, <laughs> I was just like, okay, like I can't. There's nothing I can do for you, really. Like I, I actually did help her troubleshoot it a little bit. I, I, I told her to um, reset her router, and that worked, like it does for everyone. But regardless, like it's one of those things where you're gonna get those calls when you do more client side stuff where it's not related to the actual application or to any to anything but it's really on the client side and it can happen with many different things another another example is ad blockers if someone has an ad blocker on and you have something that's using some sort of external connection that might be seen as an ad cuz ad blockers don't aren't guaranteed to catch only ads they kind of use the use an algorithm to determine is this an ad is this not an ad so it sometimes and actually pretty often can have a false positive and you know actually make a, a real application stop working that happens all the time but you don't have any control over that because it's client side so it's another one of those things where you have to really like really consider what you want client side and what you want uh, server side depending on the scale of your application because again most things can be done on both yes it's a very it's it's a it's a it's an entangled world, and as Mike said, it 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 gets even further than that. Where you know you were you were helping someone with their local internet connection, it becomes this big entangled uh, big entangled mess that, especially if you're not tech savvy, is very confusing. It, it's again, I always bring it back to cars, but it's like if my car is making a ticking sound, I'll tell the mechanic, "Hey, my car is making a ticking sound." To him, it's like, "Well, is it ticking fast? Is it ticking slow? When is it ticking?" And he has to know. 
because it's such a web of problems in this little localized vehicle that it could be. Is it, is the pump not engaging? Is it this? Is it that? Is it the coil? Like whatever, right? Whatever the problem could be. And it's the same here. It's like, people are like, Hey, my email doesn't work. It's like, well, where does it not work? Does it work on the, on the web? If it works on the web and it works on the web portal, then there's something wrong with your local machine. Is there, you know, is that as an outlook? Is it, it, did you type in the wrong thing? Did you forget your password? Are you not signed in? Like it's a million things. Like what email client are you using? And it's just, it, you know, it goes on and on and on. It's just, it's, it's, it is like this. Um, and the last one here, again, this is one of the tasks that are usually, and again, usually not done in the back end is visual centric changes. Makes a lot of sense because, you know, back and front end the whole thing. So for example, toggling dark mode or setting, uh, those search filters, like I said, or table column width, you know, dragging and dragging your, your column width uh, smaller or larger. Now I will say that you might be saying, hey, you know, there's exceptions here. Of course there's exceptions. And these exceptions to these examples might be that, let's say, especially with a toggling dark mode, um, you may want those, that setting, that setting toggle to be maintained across devices wherever the user logs in. And then you would save, you know, hey, this user has dark mode on and you put it on their account or whatever. But if it's just on a website where you just, you know, click a button to turn on reader mode, which ends up being dark mode or high contrast or whatever the, the case may be for that particular website, you know, it's very common for you to then say, go on from your computer, go to your iPad, go over there. It's now on the regular bright mode or whatever. And, and then it, you have to click the button again because they're just not going to, they're just not going to save it. Like it's hitting the server in that case for no reason. It's like, just hit the toggle and it'll be fine. That type of thing. I just want to explain something too. And I, you mentioned it a couple of times. So I just want to go a little bit in depth. Um, it's the whole across device thing. That's the problem. But if you want to save settings on a local device, it's actually very possible without a server. You can use something called local storage, which is an API that works across browsers that allows mm-hmm. you to kind of have like a mini database, a very simple mini database that will load upon reload of a, of a, um, of a site. So you can save these like dark mode and light mode settings. And even when they reload, you can pull that information from the local storage, re- reset it and show the, the correct response. But like Matt mentioned multiple times, if you have multiple devices, like if you want the setting of dark mode and light mode to go across your phone and your computer, that's when you're talking about a backend. That's when you need something in the middle there to be able to store it, save it in a database and then restore it on, on those devices. So that's where the kind of the paradigm shift happens. And I just, I just wanted to clarify a little bit of, about like the capabilities of client side, because it's actually quite capable. There's even uh, like a no SQL or um, an SQL server that you can use on in local storage, right? There's actually like a full on database you can do with local storage. Uh, I can't remember what it's called right now. It's slipping my mind. Um, but regardless, there's, there's a lot you can do. If you're only targeting someone on one device, uh, with just, uh, with just client side stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, again, it's one of those things, and, and I'll actually mention this. So because there's so many APIs and little things you can do in the browser now, uh, it's very easy. Like when I first went to go learn APIs and I rarely use them, um, and I don't think I've ever actually used one personally myself in, in production. I'm, I, I, uh, I usually just get our backend guy to do that. But, uh, when I was first learning APIs way back now, years back, 
I was trying to do it in JavaScript, getting cores issues, getting this and that. And I was thinking to myself, you know, hey, what the heck? Like, I want to grab this API information. And I, I believe I was trying to store it in local storage, which is what triggered the memory. And it's like, hey, why isn't this working? Because you forget the back end exists, especially when you're learning something like, like I was doing front end. And then I said, you know what? I'm sick of this, uh, you know, just learning stuff. I want to actually try to build out a little app for myself to try to exercise my skills. And I'll try to push myself by using an API. And, uh, you know, I, obviously I couldn't get it working uh, with just front end. Maybe there's a way to do it, yada, yada. But uh, actually, I think I maybe got like some really hacky way to work. I think I got that to work. But in general, you know, generally, you're supposed to be using an API from from a back end to, to mitigate those cores issues. And so it, it's easy to get lost in either the front end or the back end because there's so many APIs and packages and plugins and tools that we have at our disposal nowadays. It's really easy to get lost in wherever, uh, whatever part, I guess, of the industry, front end or back end or even full stack uh, that you uh, are in. It's, it's, it's easy to get kind of tangled up in there. And this last segment, so there's actually another segment here. Uh, this is all inspired by uh, the, our contractor friend that we work with. Uh, it's called Modern Amenities. So he mentions here frameworks. So I'm sure some of you have been like, why do you keep mentioning vanilla, vanilla stuff? All, all throughout the episode, I'm mentioning a lot of vanilla stuff because I really wanted to keep this basic to get the basic concepts because vanilla is as close to the metal, if you will, as you can get. But, you know, Something to mention, especially in the modern amenities section, is frameworks. Almost all apps and web apps are done with frameworks. Things like Node.js, React, .NET, Flask, Laravel, and dozens of other frameworks. It is too difficult, often too difficult, to build uh, a modern and secure application without using a framework. It also usually has some sort of boilerplate that helps you to start, but you do need to learn the inner workings of the framework as well and how it handles things like form submissions and file uploads and things like that as well. The next point here in the modern amenity section is a sort of a note on site builders. So site builders are obviously a modern thing that we uh, that we use, and site builders like WordPress make front end work actually harder. Uh, usually they use a quote unquote module approach, and you should choose modules. Uh, you should choose a module or multiple modules to put on a page. Like maybe you want to put a sponsor banner or a slider or this and that. And this module will have its own little template and its own JavaScript, and will be common. Um, for all usage of usages of this module. So if you really like the slider that comes with your particular WordPress theme, perfect. You can put that in multiple places and you know, that that's really great, but everything is really reliant on this framework. So if you really wanted to go in there and just like really quickly change something in vanilla or really quickly change something with some code, it can make front end actually harder, especially if you don't like those specific templates, which is sort of the, uh, the, the side effect of having a generalized uh, builder, Right. So trying to help, trying to appeal to appeal a little bit to everyone rather than appeal just to you. But at the same time, it adds a lot of speed. You can very quickly put up a modern website that looks modern. It just might not look exactly how you want. And it might be really difficult to change those little intricacies, especially when things keep updating. Uh, another one here, another point here is that sometimes frameworks render pages faster than you can build uh, with calling to APIs. And that's thanks to caching systems. So caching systems are, of course, really crucial. Uh, they help with other things as well. With uh, So obviously, caching systems are just quickly, boom, instead of you having to go to the remote resource. So I'll give an example. Let's say, for example, um, you want to know my name. And for whatever reason, my name is in some API somewhere else. So you're hosted on HostGator and you have a script out there that when someone loads the page, it loads my name. My name is not stored locally in a database. It is not stored locally in the HTML or the CSS or the JS or local storage, whatever. It's not stored there. It's stored on a remote server and you need to use an API to get to me. So I'm like a hop away, right? Basically, if you, you know, if you don't cache, you have to keep hitting the remote server. So someone shows up, maybe it takes five, 10 seconds for 
page, you know, the page then goes to the back end. The back end requests the the thing. My server responds with my name, and then my name gets told to go to the front end, and then you know, yada yada, whatever. And then it eventually gets displayed. If you cache it, it just remembers my name. It just bang, and it'll just load that page real quick. Um, this is especially helpful if APIs, which many do, have limitations. So there'll be limitations like, hey, don't hit this API more than three times a day. So maybe you'll cache the information three times a day, maybe at every mealtime or something, automatically a bot will do that or something. And then you'll have a cached version in between those mealtimes and it'll say, that's why some websites will say last updated and it'll tell you when, because you might be like, hey, why isn't this, you know, I, I, I deposited money here or something. Why isn't this, oh, it, you know, it only updates three, four times a day, stuff like that. That's a often due to caches and other systems, other reasons as well, but often due to caching systems. Um, and also, uh, and we mentioned this a, a little bit as well, is commonly all heavy uh, calculations are done on the server. Otherwise, it will affect the user experience badly. So for example, slow loading speed, slow interactions, those type of things. So that's why you kind of offload it to that server, to that controlled environment, and you make sure that server is powerful enough to do those heavy calculations such that it's not like, hey, the people that have the absolute best computer ever can just go whoop and they're in in a second. Whereas the person on the, the you know, let's say the older Chromebook or the old laptop that was $250 seven years ago uh, that's running on a hard drive and, you know, is barely hanging on, that thing might overheat <laughs> at this point. So you want to offload those heavy calculations onto the server uh, to mitigate that UX and to allow the person on the old laptop and the new laptop to have as close to the same experience as physically possible. Yeah, this... This topic was really good, I think. Like, I think it's really important to understand what the front end and back end is and then the intersections between them because I still get confused with it sometimes, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I'm getting better at it now and I'm starting to learn what it is because I'm using both more. But I also am more of a front end developer than a back end developer and I'm okay with that. And another, another great thing about learning the differences and learning how each one works uh, and how they interact is you can – start to specialize a little bit. And I think it's important. Full stack is great. And knowing full stack is really good probably for your resume and stuff like that. But once you're in a company or once you're in a position, it's a lot more manageable to be able to focus on one of them and really like hammer down into it. Uh, in my opinion, this is like, again, it's an opinion. Some people love only doing full stack, especially people that uh, code like web apps on their own. Obviously, you kind of need both both sides there. But in a team setting, I think it's important to kind of differentiate and, and specialize. And it's a lot better to specialize when you have an understanding of both rather than just like jumping into one that's your favorite and never paying attention to the other. Because when you're in that team setting, understanding what can be passed off to the back end and understanding what should be on the front end and having those arguments and having those conversations – is a key part of a team environment and is a really important part of architecture and design of that software, in fact. So being able to kind of, you know, have a voice in that conversation will differentiate you from people that don't have a voice in that conversation and might, it might help you get up in the, in the company's hierarchy help you become instead of just like a programmer, but maybe become a, uh, an architect, a software architect or a software developer, you know, up, up your, up your skill level and may potentially cre create yourself, uh, an opportunity to, to generate more income. Yeah, it is, it is really important to note, uh, one thing that you noted there is that even you, you know, will forget because the line is so blurred and I've had things where I've, I've started, uh, something, I forget what it was. It was, 
I forget what it was exactly now, but it was something to do with the user account. And I did the whole system locally. Like I did it all in JS because uh, I'm not, I, I don't really touch backend tech too much. And then I gave it to our backend developer. And so what do you think? And it's like, oh, this is broken if you go to another device. And it's like, oh, of course it is. Like, it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, oh, damn it. You know, of course I missed that. It's just one of those things you don't think of. You just go, oh, I, I know how to do this. And you just quickly, you know, 20, 30 minutes or something, you quickly bang it out, you get it done. And then it's like, wait a second, there's a huge hole in this. That's why you peer review and test and stuff like that. And so it really does show the line uh, or really the lack of a line, I guess, the blur of, you know, who goes where and what 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 goes where because another thing too is it, when you're doing like say for example a migration there are servers involved and a back-end developer might not understand all the server hardware either and all the networking like there's there's devops there's uh server admins and the server admins don't know how to code and the coders don't know how to server admin and there's always a blend right it's just like how some guys some people are front end some people some uh, people are back end developers but then some people are full stack developers it's sort of like some back end developers are also sysadmins uh, some devops can also code but it's not exclusive to that it's very possible that people don't know how to do it there's people that just make money on wordpress and they don't know how to code at all I know someone who does that as a little side job. They just do WordPress stuff. They don't know how to code. I asked them, like, do you, what do you use? Like, oh, I just use WordPress. I use these templates. I have this sort of, effectively, it's like a stack. They have like a stack of like plugins, like a boilerplate group of plugins and templates that they use, but they don't know how to code. And so there's even people that are developing websites, if you will, that aren't developers. Like they're not programming things. They're not, you know what I mean? So they're, they are developers in that they're developing this product. But like whenever someone says developers, they think, oh, they're programming up a site. That's not necessarily true. Technically, when you're doing a, and this is going to be controversial, I'm sure. Technically, when you're doing a, a WordPress or a web, let's say a Webflow site, technically you're developing that project, right? You're technically, when, when a movie's in development or in production, it's being developed in a way, right? So I would say like, it's almost like they're developers. Maybe they're not programmers. I don't know. Whatever you want to call it. Who cares about the labels? But the whole point of the matter is, is that the lines are so blurred with all this tech that we have. And the lines are so not a line anymore that you have such a, you, you have people making thousands of dollars a month on just using no code tools. There's a reason why my one buddy did it or still does it. I'm not sure if he still does as a side thing because uh, it makes him money. He's only there to, it's a side hustle. Why else would he do it? He doesn't have a passion for it. He just wants to make a little bit extra money. And he doesn't want to learn how to code, but he's still making sites. And to the untrained eye and even to the trained eye, I haven't seen any of his sites, but you're not going to notice that that site wasn't like programmed from the ground up necessarily or whatever, right? So there's such a, there's such a, a blend now of ways to make websites and ways to interact with tech that like, it's almost like the walls have been broken down or something, if you will. And it's such a blend. Um, now, to end my rant here, I do want to say that I did use a couple of sources uh, for this and that they were both Cloudflare sources, Cloudflare, excuse me, sources. I will put those links to, in the description. I just used them just for a couple of different things. And also I included a uh, serverless computing article as well. If you want to read about that, we didn't cover it too in depth here. And I used a little bit from their what do client side and server side mean. I used a little bit of information in there. Most of it I already knew though, uh, but I will include those, those sources so you can uh, read up on those. And again, with the serverless computing as well, you can read up on that as well. But unless Mike has anything to add, this part, first, first two-parter episode it is time to end the first part, Mike. So do you have anything to add before I run the old conclusion here? Runner up. 
Alrighty, well, remember that we are on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash htmlthethings. Check out the tiers and give that a go. Many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript on youtube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Selfmade Web Designer on selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com, DL Ford from dlford.io, Bib Hashash from 9block Media on 9blockmedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se and Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And we are signing off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.